Hey guys, thanks for joining me for this 80th episode in Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guests on this episode include co-founder of Rockfield, the studio on the farm, Kinsley Ward. We'll be talking about the documentary, Rockfield, the studio on the farm. We'll also visit with the widow of Freddie Powers and author, Jake Brown. Catherine Powers and Jake Brown talking about the memoir, soundtrack, and upcoming movie, all accompanying the book, The Spree of 83, The Life and Times of Freddie Powers, which will be available tomorrow. Of course, if you would, please take the time to subscribe, comment, leave some feedback, check out the shop, and share with your friends. Now, it's tough if your friends and family don't like the person you're dating. But if your pet hates them, that's easy, right? I mean, you just say bye. Well, a new survey of 2,000 single people found that 67% would dump someone if their pet didn't like them. And we value our pet's opinion of people we date over everyone else's opinion, including our own. Now, two-thirds say that they trust their pet more than their friends or family when it comes to relationships. And 71% trust their pet's take more than they trust themselves. Now, here are five more real quick stats. Number one, seven in 10 people have dated someone that their pet didn't like. And 63% said their pet has saved them from dating the wrong person. Number two, when it comes to getting along with our pets, we don't give a lot of second chances. Most people said if their pet doesn't like the person immediately, it's over. Number three, the most obvious signs that your pet doesn't like someone are, they won't go near them, they claw or bite, or they growl or hiss. Number four, 69% said they'd rather be in a fight with a significant other than a fight with their pet. And number five, according to the poll, the best ways to make someone's pet like you are being friendly, scratch them behind the ear, and give them treats. We're going to talk a little bit about a new documentary, Rockfield, the studio on the farm. And who better to talk about it with than uh, one of the farmers himself, Kingsley Ward, one of the co-founders of Rockfield. And first off, Kingsley, I appreciate you taking some time to be on the show. Well, thank you very much, yes. Now, now tell us, where did the idea of changing the farm into a recording studio? I mean, was that a whim or uh, how did that originally first come up for you guys? Well, it's a strange story. It's a great story, by the way. It goes back 60 years um, at a time when there were no actually commercial studios outside the majors, which was owned by CBS, RCA and EMI. And we wanted to record our little group. We had nowhere to record them. So we borrowed a tape recorder and a microphone, made some tapes. Within two years, we got better and better at recording and we started to hire a little studio out. That's when we became a commercial studio. But what really changed for us was in 1967-68, we became a residential recording studio where people could stay. Because we're on a farm and we're out in the wilds and people had to stay here, you see. So that's when we changed everything for the world because we became a residential recording studio. It opened the door to many other studios who followed us afterwards. And what was what was the initial perception by, uh, by whenever you guys reached out about folks coming to record? Was it was it taken well at the beginning? Well, initially, some of the record companies in London said to me, "You'll never work outside London." Well, they got that wrong, didn't they? Because Rockford today <laughs> is reckoned to be historically probably the most valuable studio in the world. Historically, not the best studio, particularly, mainly because all the other studios have fallen by the wayside because. You know, the music business changed and it's been in decline a bit for rock bands. 
And so most of the big studios have gone, and unfortunately, and it's left us uh, with a couple of other studios, you know, and we're iconic in the fact that we've, we've played host to the greatest rock bands in the world, and they're all very kind to us, you know, and they've come on this program, you know, a studio on a farm, and they've all been very kind to us, and they've all told their stories, and they've used this film sometimes, like Robert Plant used the film to talk about Led Zeppelin and the breakup, you know, and Liam Gallagher talked about Oasis when they broke up, and Coldplay talked about how they wrote Yellow. If they hadn't been in Rockfield, mm. they would never have seen the stars shining, they'd never seen the moon shine. they would never have written Yellow. So in that respect, and I'm sat, funny enough, I'm sat in the very spot where Freddie Mercury wrote Pima Rhapsody, or finish it off, because I'm in an office, it's an office now. In those days, it was an old piano where I'm sat, and uh, Freddie came in here, he left this old piano in this old stable block, and I came in and he was just finishing off Bohemian Rhapsody. Wow. So there's a little bit of history for you. <laughs> now, did you did you ever have any of the the artists that wanted to get a little training in the, in the farm aspects of life as well? Oh yes. Well, you must remember some of the boys from the towns. They'd never seen cows. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a shock for them for a start. Um, and so yeah, they they take an interest. They come outside and they see us what we're doing, like on the farm, and they're very interested in it. Because it's something they've never seen, you know. So it, it adds to it, doesn't it, really? Did you build relationships through this that, that continued on? And, and how surprised yeah. are you by the those relationships that were that were forged on the farm? Well, what surprised me was when they decided to make this documentary, um, I was surprised that the number of bands which turned up, they could make at least three or four of these films on Rockford. It's so big, Rockford's history is <laughs> so vast. But um, the, the ones they selected were iconic you know, and they all in the got massive followers around the world and they all have a great story to tell. And they tell it on this film of Rockfield, you know, and it's, it's rubbed off on us really. And it's very kind of them, but um, we're very grateful for the fact that they could take the time to even want to be a part of us. And which, is there a specific maybe album or track that really you take the most pride in saying that that's ours? That's <laughs> something that well, was done it, there. Well, I, I tell you, uh, there's two studios at Rockville. The one where I'm at the present moment will always be part of Queen's history because in, in the 20th century, the greatest rock records, British rock records, the 20th century, if we had won the top 20, we'd be happy. We're number one and number five. Wow. <laughs> number one with the compilation to Queen and number five with Oasis. Um, so I, I suppose if you look back, to achieve that is quite an achievement, really. But it wasn't us, was it? It was the groups who actually made the records. We were just a vehicle in between. And do you, what would you say to somebody that has a dream that everybody's trying to tell them it'll never work? It, well, obviously, well, for, you keep going, right? <laughs> well, I tell you, it's the story, story of America, really. It's the American dream, isn't it? Where you can, you can do it, you will do it, and that's what we are really. America gave the world rock and roll. We turned up, and we've given the music business, well, the studio business, a different way of doing things. We made a bit of history, and I think it's helped and made a lot of interest to a lot of people around the world because the Rockfield film is everywhere now around the world, and got massive people around the world follow us because their favorite records were done here, you know. And last year, we had a lot of Japanese over here uh, because of the Queen film, Bohemian Rhapsody. And when I stood in the studio where Bohemian Rhapsody was recorded, I said to them, now look, I said, I'm going to play you something. I don't want any crying. So I put Bohemian Rhapsody on, and they were singing and crying at the same time. How was that? <laughs> a moment, and that's what, it meant, that's what it meant to the Japanese fans of Queen. They were singing and crying at the same time as they played the record. 
And, and for you, how can you quantify what chasing your dream has meant to you and, and what it's meant to rock and roll music and, and European music over the last 50 years? I think it's, it's living proof that if you take the trouble, you do things properly and you have a bit of luck. It's still, you know, you've got to have a, got an element of luck with it. I think you will succeed, but sometimes you've got to go through hard times. The tide goes out and the tide comes in. And in 1992, as an example, there was a world recession financially in 1990, and there's no business whatsoever for studios. I get a phone call and a band called Stone Roses turned up and they were here for 13 months. Wow. Well, at a time when we needed the money. <laughs> <laughs> and they were followed by Oasis, you see. So there we are. That's awesome. Now, uh, Kingsley, I want to make sure if folks want to find more information about the documentary and everything about Rockfield, where's that? Where's the best place to keep up with all that, sir? Well, as far as I know, the, the, the trailer's on the internet, the trailer's a film, but I think you can actually get the film on the internet now. I'm not too sure, actually. I think you can get the film on it. It's well worth looking. If you're a music fan, I know it's been shown in American cinemas, the drive-in cinemas. If you can get a, a rock and roll fan and you're into a great story, which what Rockford is, go and see the film, because I think you'll find it very entertaining. That's right. Well, again, co-founder of the legendary recording studio and farm Rockfield, Kingsley Ward. It has truly been a privilege to have the chance to visit with you today. I appreciate you taking some time out and hopefully you have a great rest of your week, sir. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Now, would you say that you're a normal person or are you weird and different? Well, a recent study found that we're twice as likely to say that we're not like other people. 48% agreed with the statement, most people are not like me, while one in four said they are pretty normal in general. Now everyone else wasn't sure if they're more normal or weird. Now men were a little more likely to say that they're cut from a different cloth, 50% compared to 46% of women, so not a huge difference. But the one thing that does matter is age. Only 12% of people under 25 think they're normal compared to 33% of seniors. Our next guest on the podcast, we've got uh, widow of Freddie Powers, Catherine Powers, and uh, also biographer and author Jake Brown. Got a new book that is uh, releasing tomorrow. Is that right, Jake? In stores everywhere on Friday, the spring of 83. The Life and Times of Freddie Powers. There's also an official book soundtrack and two live albums on Spotify, so you can listen as you read. Before we came on the air, I was talking. Jake was talking about music and the history, and uh, you just kind of being around Nashville a little bit, and how you're intertwined with music. And for you, tell us how cool it is to have this story being released. Well, it's absolutely great because uh, you know this is something Freddie had been working on for years, and thank God that Jake and I was able to find old journals and notes and scratch pads and stuff that where he had been you know writing this himself so pretty much everything in the book where it's under freddie freddie wrote it himself said from freddie so, yeah. i'm sorry it said by freddie or he told it uh, to yes, us yes, in his yes. final years yeah. yes so um so i'm excited for my freddie i know this would be making him so happy to know that this is out and um Hopefully we'll get the movie done and we'll keep just keeping Freddie's name alive is something that I promised that I would do. And uh, I will 
Continue. <laughs> yeah. The, if I make one note, a, a footnote to that, too, is that, the, you know, we worked for nine years on this project from 2012 to now. And I, you know, I met Freddie and Catherine the first time in a hospital where they thought Freddie was going and it wasn't coming out. And then he kept going in and coming out. They had an actual hospital bed on the tour bus and Catherine kept him going all over the country the last 10 years where most people would just be respectfully in some kind of, you know, not hospice, but some kind of permanent care place. Catherine became a nurse, a manager, a tour bus driver, all these things, a co-author. Um, and when, when I had the privilege of, of getting to actually get to know Freddie on a weekly basis, they'd be, in, they'd come for months and stay at music row down on music row right by George Straits. And we would sit on the bus and Freddie personally, the three of us would, you know, do all kinds of fun stuff and talk and reminisce. And Freddie would sing for us. And he, you know, people would come and visit that he hadn't hadn't seen him in years or had seen him a lot, but not like this. And you really appreciated what Parkinson's does to the, the spirit of a lot of people and then physically strips them of all these things. Freddie kept his. And what Catherine did, I think, to help keep that that alive was she made his name even bigger respectfully that it necessarily might not that it wouldn't have been, but he was starting to get all these legacy awards and things, but he wasn't just going to the show and then going back to the hospital. She kept him at concerts, even in wheelchairs, singing and telling jokes and playing. And, and it was a remarkable story. The, his first part of his, his whole life, but then the last 15 years that these two together of the 30, they were married, uh, that she really kept his name out there and kept that flame burning and all, and all sorts of new fans. He's met so many new generations of fans because of it that we have today to sell this book to <laughs> so now Catherine for you what what is it about uh, about Freddie about his music that that you find so endearing and you hear back from the fans firsthand it's more than just his music you know um Freddie was also a producer but it um Boy, you got me at a loss for words right now. <laughs> Catherine, tell him about the songwriters that play for Freddie when he was at Floribama or anywhere else when he couldn't sing in his own songs anymore. So many people loved his music and replaying his music, his chords. His, he's got a legacy just as a musician, right, that continues to reverberate. Uh, uh, yes. Um, you know, what he was saying is that when Freddie was starting to lose his ability and what he would call his wind, to be able to sing his songs well the audience would just kind of step in and help him out the band would help him out but um it was just he he was such a giver of his time and his music and it was just something i didn't want to let just die out and just you know so we kept him going all the time it kept and freddie going too it gave him a reason it, to keep fighting it, it did. It kept him in the music business. Even when we got down here to the Floribama and he wasn't able to perform anymore, I would take him over to the Floribama and the um, musicians there, he, they would play his music for him. And you could just see the light in his eyes and the happiness, you know. So it, it was um, it was always some great, beautiful moments. Yeah. The Floribama actually has on their walls, because, as you know, that's a historic storied songwriters club and Frank Brown songwriting festival founder, uh, you know, Joe Gilchrist, of course, and John McGinnis co-owns it now, and he's kept the tradition going, but Freddie had not yet until Rolling Stone magazine, when he passed, 
they first ran an obit and then I contacted the the author of that story and begged them if they would just give us a follow up where we could plug the book and John Doe and somebody did a cover of a Freddie song just as an example of the wide array of rock and roll styles even beyond country that play this guy's music so then we had it framed and now on the wall of the Floribama Freddie Powers in Rolling Stone whenever anyone walks by there they read that they're likely to be hearing somebody like Chris Newberry or, or our locals down there that would then keep a song going playing his songs today he's really an institution there and he was before he even got there but that he spent his final years there's also a really touching part of the story and jake for you what was it about the story that first brought interest to you i mean you you've written so many what was yeah. it about this story that stuck out um being a kid in the 1980s growing up in the midwest with my grandfather armin Themi. Rest in peace. I will get emotional about this. Uh, he had a sailboat. He retired, a little sailboat. And he, he refurbished it himself on a place called Lake Carlisle in Illinois. And every pretty much once, twice a month, I would go out there with him for a while, especially when he was first doing it. And my brother, and he would play country music. And we would hear Merle Haggard all in the game. And we would hear, let's chase each other around the room tonight. Hear Natural High. Oh, so... I knew who Freddie was for years. And when I got the idea to do this National Songwriter book series back in 2012, he was like the, I think it was Ka Craig Wiseman, Sonny Curtis. I got some great names early on. And I said, let me just see if I can get Freddie. And <laughs> Freddie and Catherine were coming to town, which I was quite flattered about. I'm sure they had other things to do here too, but they had driven up here in the, in the first place to do this interview. Well, that day he wound up, she called me and she said, look, he may not make it out of the hospital. There's, he's at the VA. Do you want to come meet him? And we met and she handed me this well-worn, as I call it, uh, it was about 80 page manuscript that Freddie had been dictating to Catherine. And then Catherine had been, so the gen, the, the roots of the book were there. Um, and I'm just giving you kind of a backstory to understand why this book means so much. And, and I don't know, it's hard to explain because it could sound a little Hallmark channel-y, but in <laughs> fact, one of the script advisors that we had read our script that when Catherine and I wrote it last year told us this, they wanted us to rework it to be like, almost like a Hallmark story because there's that element to be like, no, 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 this is a rock and roll outlaw country legend story. But, um, the manuscript wasn't just a book. I thought there was a movie in it. And I had had two previous films that got options, the Shook Knight book and another one, and never went anywhere and i desperately desperately wanted to turn this into a, eventually a film and thankfully they shared that vision and the reason is this is a six decade story this story starts in the 1950s it starts before that in the marines but then it starts in the 1950s at the foundation of really the outlaw country movement because willie nelson and freddie powers and paul buskirk their mutual mentor and teacher are together and catherine can tell you from that point on, his story just, it never stopped being amazing decade to decade. In the 60s, he's rolling around Vegas and he works his way up to becoming the king of the scene. And for the 70s, he had a penthouse at the El Dorado and, you know, the, he's hanging out. Catherine, tell him about the, the, the from Jack Ruby and then these mobs. It's just, just this one <laughs> element of the story is so fascinating alone. Tell him, <laughs> Freddie ran a club and he knew, tell him about this relationship he had. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, him and Jack Ruby were were great friends. Jack Ruby um, had his nightclub over in Dallas, and then Freddie had his over in Arlington. And they would actually swap out um, entertainment, and Freddie would go and play at Jack's place. And um, Jack even gave Freddie a little puppy one time. It's a real sweet story. <laughs> but but Freddie, you know, it wasn't just Jack Ruby, but it was, like he said, in the casinos. And back in those days, they were ran by the mafia, and they would have titles 
um, like the yeah. uh, entertainment director or the beverage manager. And so Freddie hung out with um, all these mafia guys and he would laugh and say, you know, um, he worked for the mafia, though he was never a part <laughs> of the mafia. But um, he had Alan Glick and Lefty Rosenthal and just uh, a lot of the history with Freddie. It's just amazing how he his career just kept going and all the people that he was involved with. Yeah. And, and, and to her point, um, you know, when Freddie would sit here and I would ask him about these different things, even when, cause I had about three years, especially about two years to be really fair from 12 to 14, where he could still talk. He would, they would go to a whisper, but he could still full sentences. He could sing. He could, sing. but when you would ask him about these things, he would almost get the, even within the Parkinson's this cryptic Catherine calls it a smile on his eyes, which I think is a song title in and of itself, uh, maybe for the movie about him or something, but he would literally light up like that. When you'd ask him about these mafia guys, you'd be like, Freddie, this is a guy that was in casino and he would just light up because he was there. <laughs> And you could see that Freddie was also a very visual guy, I think, in the way his life was lived. It was almost like a movie. It was very cinematic. In the 80s, well, even just before that, from all this mafia stuff, this, the, he had to perform. You know, these guys wouldn't have given him these positions. He had power of the pen, which means really, if you take that backdrop, the responsibility for what could otherwise have been a freewheeling musician that never worried about the one gig to the next, Freddie was given authority. And Catherine can tell you some of the responsibilities. He had a penthouse suite. He'd bring guests up, high rollers. Tell her what he could do. I mean, it was crazy. Well, that pen, and that penthouse was always fully stocked. They kept it stocked with wine and pizza and whatever. Beer. <laughs> yep, <had> liquor. <laughs> but with the power of the pen, that gave Freddie the he was able to um, get you a room or get your drinks or get you um, show tickets. And the main thing about it was being able to get you a marker, which um, was a major thing if you were playing on the tables and you didn't have the cash in your pocket, he could sign for you to get a marker for it. So Yeah. Then then on top of that, consider that whenever celebrities like Merle had, well, really Willie Nelson's a better early example. When Willie would come through Vegas, Freddie would go over and sit with him. He'd come over and sit with Freddie and the casino managers would get upset because all the floor people gambling on the floor would migrate <laughs> over to see Freddie and Willie. And there's a story we actually took out of the screenplay because it would have been too hard to try to reenact where, you know, Freddie would blow fire. Freddie was such an entertainer. The two live <laughs> albums that we've got, uh, they were literally soundboard recorded professionally back then and Milton Quackenbush gave them to us thank you Milton uh, who was in the band at the at that time mm -hmm. you can hear Freddie you can hear the audience you can hear the Dixieland jazz which lays the foundation for what he is we are also in this book American songwriter yesterday ran a story music row magazine we've also had this is Reno all three in the headline of their story say the byline say and it's such an important thing we are communicating as an overarching theme of this book. Freddie's credit for bringing Dixieland jazz into the country music mainstream. It's irrefutable. We back it up with Rattlesnake Annie and John Rich and Big Kenny and Tanya Tucker and Willie and Merle and all these people who actually helped him usher it out into such a, a prominence. So when he meets Willie at this picking party, they, after the gigs, they would all play. Catherine can set this up better because it's, you know, but these guys would get together in a room and pick and in walks Merle. And so the next generation of his career begins. It's incredible how his story has serendipity all throughout it. 
And, and Jake, for you, you talk uh, so many different facets of music and different genres as well. And how can you talk to the way Freddie's music and his writing affected so many of the genres that we have today? Well, I'll I'll split that answer up with Catherine because she's she was there to watch it happen. But um, there's an interesting point in Freddie's career. So there's the Merle period, which I don't want to gloss over so we can get to that more in detail. But the songs they wrote together obviously became monster number ones around the world and then reverberated through a whole new generation of country music people growing up like John Rich, who talks about this in the book, listening. I want to give you examples from the book and people that talk to us. So John Rich talks about Freddie Powers, quote unquote, chords. So does Frank Lydell, who is Miranda Lambert's producer for 50 15 years and God knows how many number one hits and growing up in Texas, they learned Freddie Powers chords because they were on the more sophisticated end of the scale. We also have like B.B. Morse um, people in the book that played with Freddie that helped really, if you're like music theorist or you're a layman, they really deconstruct the mystery of this because um, basically Freddie's music. And the way that his particular guitar playing uh, reverberated through Merle Haggard in terms of his, you know, influencing his style. Willie Nelson credits Freddie in the book, in quotes, um, as one of his, quote, two favorite guitar players, along with Paul Buzzkirk. And in terms of his originality of. So just the fact that, I, you know, you know, the, the Joe Satriani book, of course, was, was I mean, that next to Eddie Van Halen and Steve I, that's it. Maybe the Spanamasa guy that's coming up now. Um, Joe Satriani knew who Freddie Powers was. Just to give you an example there when he heard. I was doing that, but he said, wow, that guy's an amazing guitar player. Um, so the fact that then they moved to Texas after the 80s, which we can get to at Lake Shasta, because that's a, a period unto itself. Freddie starts interfacing with all these people that in the 80s were being influenced by him, like John Rich, like Pauline Reese, who's a teenager and others. And then they have a television show in their living room while they're living on <laughs> Willie Nelson's golf course. And I'll pass it to Catherine. But she saw this amazing organic group of people that would migrate to these picking parties and these these television tapings just to be in the presence of these songwriters. It was a show about songwriters, Rodgers and Hammerhead. So his influence just became so expansive in new generations. It was really interesting to see and talk to those people and see how Freddie's chords kept reverberating and influence in his songwriting. And Catherine can tell you about Austin. It was incredible. Well, when we moved to Austin, like he said, we was up on Willie's um, golf course living in Mike David house, um, which Willie had lived in that house uh, Ray Price used that place as his kitchen. He would come in and cook. And Chris Ray, Willie lived in their driveway. Didn't <laughs> Willie live in your driveway for a while? Well, okay, I I have to make sure that everybody understands that. Willie had his bus parked in the driveway. <laughs> um, his house was up on the hill. But because we were right across the street from number six, all Willie had to do was roll out of the bus, get on the golf cart, and <laughs> there he was on the golf course. So for about three and a half years, yeah, his bus was parked in the driveway, and um, I loved cooking for Willie. Willie would eat anything. I would if the Freddie was like, "Oh, mom, I don't like this." I go, "Well, Willie does." <laughs> but also the the people, the group of people through these golf tournaments, which we should also mention, because we were trying to, I was trying to explain this in a podcast the other day, and I think the host got it, but they had so much else they wanted to talk about. These golf tournaments that Coach Royal, the legendary football coach in Texas, and Willie hosted together. Coach Royal, for people that don't know, passed the IRS thing where always fans bought the property and gave it back. That was mostly Coach Roy's fans bought a lot, but the main estate, all of Willie's property, that's how much Coach loved Willie. So they would have astronauts and actors and Owen Wilson and James Garner and Matthew McConaughey and all these people would descend on Spicewood to play golf every year. And Freddie was sitting there, usually with Willie or right near him in a golf court, if not 
not in the cart. They would be together all the time. Then they would pick all night at these big elaborate songwriter deals. So Freddie was playing with and for this amazing amalgam of different legends and famous people all the time from these different places. And so his universe, even socially, was incredible in Austin. But his influence over the people that would come to these things and see everyone play and go, man, but, you know, the standout was Catherine can tell you, Freddie was always like revered among people that heard him play guitar. It was incredible. Like he was saying, and, it, you know, Freddie was a rhythm guitar player. And um, but his guitar in itself also became a well-known instrument. Yeah. It's like at the Coach Royal golf tournaments, all the Charlie Pride, Larry Gatlin, all of these people, when it come time for them to get up and perform, they all grab Freddie's guitar. And Larry Gatlin even said one time that if they made a guitar like Freddie Powers, he would have an ovation. <laughs> and so Freddie's guitar, as well as his you know, playing, became well known in the yeah. golf tournaments. And his songwriting, and, and and so the point is, if his songs are penetrating golf tournaments, and Freddie actually had his own golf tournaments. Freddie, uh, even before the Parkinson's, he wrote the Nevada Special Olympics theme, Everyone Deserves a Chance to Win. And there's really charming stories in the book Catherine tells about once his Parkinson's got going, and I'll let her tell this uh, story because it's remarkable. Rather than just fundraise for themselves, which would have been perfectly legitimate to pay for the exorbitant medical expenses, and Freddie being a veteran, he was a Marine, he served in the Marines for years, that was hope. But I mean, they have their own Parkinson's Foundation and crews. Tell them about this is incredible what you guys built with this. It was to help others. Well, well it was basically, you know, like you said, we did a lot of um, fundraisers for pretty much everything, anywhere from the Boys and Girls Clubs to um, Special Olympics to diabetes. We did all, all, we were involved in every one of them. Freddie loved being out there and giving back of his time. And so when he had gotten the Parkinson's, we thought, well, why don't we put together a, you know, a Freddie Powers Parkinson's uh, Foundation and raise money for research for Parkinson's and um, and to help all those that, you know, with Parkinson's. And Freddie was an inspiration too, um, especially with the Parkinson's, because like you said, a lot of people would have just given up and just let themselves just go away but freddie wanted to show the world that just because you had a disease like that didn't mean that you had to give up and so i still today have people you know young artists calling me and saying that they've got parkinson's and they want to be like freddie and they don't want to give up and they want to keep going so the inspiration that freddie became on because of the parkinson's was um just something, you know, something special and something out of the ordinary. That he, he actually still produced a record with Mary Sarah called Bridges. Catherine can tell you about that led really helped get her into the spectrum of the voice. Tell him about Bridges because Freddie produced. I mean, Freddie put it together while he's in the uh, hospital bed. With I, I remember I remember the album. Uh, Mary Sarah did a radio tour to our station for that album. Yes. Well, Freddie was the executive producer and uh, it all started that, he, you know, we was going to set up a duet with Mary Sarah and Merle. And then, of course, it just kept going until <laughs> the next thing you know, we had Merle and Willie and Ray Price and Dolly Parton, Tanny Tucker. And, the, you know, the list was 13 of them. Yeah. So um, that was actually Freddie's final project was the Mary Sarah album. So, wow. yeah. and like, so, 
I got stuff falling off over here. And she's in the book among a lot of other people and also on the soundtrack. Um, you know, the other thing that was pr pretty poignant about the story uh, from the standpoint of his influence was this gentleman, Lucas uh, D'Souza. And I want to I want to explain this. It might have been Lucas D'Souza, but there's a bunch of people that not just through the Rodgers and Hammerhead and the songwriting, you know, picking parties and things. Freddie was always bringing in but he had, and I'll let Catherine, I'll set this up and let Catherine go with it because she she curated it and produced it and kept everyone quiet with the Coach Royal rules. But Freddie had not one, but two picking parties of his own. Wow. Uh, and, and Catherine, tell them how that started and everything. Well, you know, they always had the picking parties. It was something that, you know, Freddie and Merle, that's how Freddie, that's how Freddie ended up with Merle, was just sitting around having a picking party in Willie's hotel room. And um, but we also we had the um, the Freddie Powers South by Southwest picking party, which um, every year at the um, it's they actually have a building called the Freddie Powers picking pavilion. Yeah. And, um, and then our other party is on New Year's Day and it's the Freddie Powers Black Eyed Pea and Cabbage picking party where everybody brings their favorite black eyed peas and cabbage and we share each other's and. Um, listen to a lot of great music we have we've had you know from michael martin murphy to tanya tucker to willie and merle we've just you know and um it's and we don't just kind of stick with the celebrities or the well-knowns we open that stage to even beginners like as he was just saying um the little Sousa guy a lucas and um mary sarah and Lauren Beller, Pauline Reese, you know, we, Freddie was really wanted to, you know, help every, he always said that the best thing you could, you could do is to give back and to show, to give the opportunity for others up and coming and, and open the doors for them. And Freddie was always good at trying to do that for, for all of them. Yeah. And, and so that doesn't just sound like a token novice thing, because it's something that a lot of people probably even say to put it into, into you know, words into action. Freddie, uh, there's Teresa Fig is interviewed in the book, who's the who co-curates the, the, the New Year's Day party. Out of that alone, we're talking about people getting European tour opening act. Endor you know, we're talking about endorsements. We're talking about a couple cases, record deals, um, talking about television appearances. Um, these were not novice things where, oh, yeah, you come play at our local bar. I mean, this was actual exposure that helped to launch. And John Rich, actually, uh, not entirely, but John Rich speaks about in the 90s when he was in Lone Star meeting Freddie for the first time over there at the McDavid house and, and just already the influence he'd had. But Kenny and him both talk about different points at which they and Freddie reciprocally, you know, would, would sort of rub each other's back because there's a hilarious video uh on the big and rich is it catherine is it welcome to the the, the city one where freddie's the old man in the beginning of it and it's coming to your city coming to yeah, your city yeah you see freddie and and the thing that you know he was a good looking sob but, you know you see this guy <laughs> back in the 60s in the copacabana sitting there in the book we have a picture i'd take me too much time to turn to it but he's you know after he was on the tonight show he was on the tonight show way back then so he he was always a, a, not just a a player but an entertainer and a personality and when he got parkinson's another really interesting thing about why he stayed was able to stay performing it wasn't just singing freddie would then we excerpt in the book uh really elaborately we pull direct comedy raps from his shows and reprint them so you can hear it straight from him 
when he had Parkinson's, for instance, he played Willie's Fourth of July to a huge mm-hmm. crowd and did jokes about his Parkinson's in the wheelchair and had people. And then Catherine can tell you about this like really lauded historic local Nashville thing at Mount Ridgemore, John Rich's house. He had his own dirty joke night. Tell her about the dirty joke. <laughs> that night. was on April the 1st, um, April Fool's Day. Freddie would have the um, dirty joke night. And yeah. uh, like he said, at John Rich's house at Mount Richmore. Who would show up there, though? It's crazy. Uh, we would have everybody from George Jones to Mel Tillis, who I just loved hearing him. He was so funny. Um, to You know, there was quite a few different celebrities that would come in at John's, and um, they would all swap jokes with Freddie and be on the stage with Freddie, you know, doing their jokes and Freddie telling their jokes. And it, yeah. it was just um I'm yeah, sorry. Willie Nelson, tell him about the phone bills. These guys, Willie and Freddie, were constantly <laughs> trading jokes. So Catherine has this hilarious story that's in the book that she lived paying the bills <laughs> for. <laughs> well, Willie would call. I don't care if he was in Australia or wherever he was. If he heard a new joke, he would call Freddie, and it didn't make any difference what time it was. If it was 3 o'clock in the morning, the phone would ring. We'd know, it's Willie. He's got a new joke. And, um, so and he would tell Freddie all these jokes, out, and then by the time he'd get home, Freddie had already been out of the golf course telling all the jokes. So when <laughs> Willie would come home and start to tell the joke, people would look at him. Freddie's already told that one. Yeah. <laughs> so was, and then at the end of the month, there would be these multi-hundred dollar phone bills sometimes. <laughs> and she'd be like, Freddie, I, I, you know, kind of have, because she did, you know, kind of come to him and say, this is from all of y'all telling jokes at three in the morning. It, it illustrates, too, the lifelong friendships um, that that Freddie had with Willie going back to the early 50s all the way up through. He did an interview for the book with us on Christmas Day. That shows you just, I mean, of all the time that guy's robbed of by his profession. And right. Merle, too, um, the humor, really, because we've talked more about Willie, which is great because he's an important part of the story, but Merle Haggard um, and Freddie really were co-pilots for such a literal, I mean, literally they were, but they were for such an important part of both Freddie's career. And to be fair, Catherine can speak this more with authority than me. Merle's in terms of the early eighties, when those hits they started writing together really to a new generation of country, like myself, that were kids, we were like, wow, Merle hat. Cause you all knew mama tribe was like, wow, Merle's cool. You know, like because of these cool quirky songs. And then they moved to Lake Shasta and this whole rock and roll part of the story begins. It competes with any rock star I've ever written. Let me kill my stir. Part, you name them. The, Freddie Powers out partied them all, man, and out. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> he actually built his airplane right there on the dock, and um, he and Merle, Merle would always call himself the um, the control tower, and uh, he would be on the ground, and Freddie would be up in the air flying, and he would run across either a school of fish. And a report back to Merle, hey, well, I just, you know, saw the shad running, which meant great fishing. Or he would say, oh, wait a minute, Merle, I just discovered a bunch of naked women over here. Yeah. Cove. And Merle would say, I'll meet you at Jones Valley Cove. <laughs> there, there's, even a, there's even a story that Merle told us himself when we interviewed him. Uh, you know, he, he, he tells this story about Frank Sinatra calling him to invite him to come play for Reagan as part of this big echelon of upper, you know, legendary musicians. And he said, he said, turned it down. He said, me and Freddie are having too much fun. <laughs> Actually, he said, he and Freddie, he goes, uh, told him, no, he said, we're, we're busy. Yeah, we're busy. <laughs> we're busy. That's because they had a houseboat full of girls. 
and they would go up to the pit river. There would be like Freddie and Merle and four or five girls and they'd go up to pit river and um, they would party for the whole weekend and just sometimes with clothes on and most of the time. <laughs> <in clothes up>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and actually in the book trailer, if you go to the website, the spree of 83 book.com or our YouTube channel, where you can see a lot of really cool Freddie from the 70s shows all the way up through the picking parties and everything else. There's actually a trailer there that shows we Art Catherine gave me, that was a funny thing too. The, some of the stuff was on VHS and we had to convert it or they had them on DVDs, but we found video that somebody shot of Freddie, in that era right there and like on the houseboats, but it, the houseboats, it, it, you can actually see them on the cover of our book, which comes out Friday, <laughs> right there in the corner. And there's better pictures of it in the hundred pages of color photos you can get inside, but you get taken really right inside the houseboats, inside the parties inside guys would rock and roll all night. And they would get up like musicians do by nine or 10, 11, and they'd write number one songs. I mean, it was, and then they go out on the road and you get songs like silver Eagle, which is one of Freddie's, I think still one of his favorites or little hotel room. There's a whole other part of the book that deals with the road Life. There's a great story that Mark Oswald, who at that time was the tour manager, told us about Merle and Freddie when they were on tour with a couple other guys and the strangers. And they had about five hours before the show started. And Mark began to pick up a $40,000 deposit for that night. That was their show money. They go, they get bored, they get off the bus, they're parked near the Boston Commons where that big fountain is. It's famous in movies like Goodwill Hunting where Robin right. Williams mm -hmm. and him sitting. They, they go around that pond. There's a little thing, like a they circle. And within about five minutes, he said 300 people had emerged. All these street performers were sitting there all pissed off because all their business went over to these four guys in hats and sweatpants <laughs> sitting there playing picking. Mark gets there and Catherine can tell you what happens. But it became this really funny story in the book. Merle told us. <laughs> well, Mark. actually, when Mark walked up, he, he saw this big crowd. So he just throws his hat down. <laughs> and of course, people start throwing in money and all this stuff. So when they get back to the bus. They're counting up all the money and they're dividing it. He, Mark says, well, that comes to about $40 a person. So he's handing out the money, but he didn't give any to Merle. And Merle <laughs> goes, wait a minute. I want my cut. Merle was more concerned about getting his cut from that little street uh, performance they did <laughs> than the actual check that Mark Oswald just picked up for $40,000. Yeah. And, and there's there's also lots of really cool stories, you know, we found in Freddie's journals. Um, every couple of years between 2012 and about 2018, Catherine, well, even 19, Catherine would call me and go, okay, I've been to the storage unit and I found these notebooks and then she would give them to me and I would, and there in Freddie's own hand, I'm sitting on the bus and it'd be like 1988 or 1987 or, so we, we really were able to teleport readers through Freddie's actual in the moment memories into what that life was like because for Merle and this comes from like Mark Oswald and others in the strangers we interviewed a lot of members of that band Biff Adams the drummer and Scotty Joss and Norm Hamlet it was almost it sounds dramatic because no one likes to hear rock stars complain about celebrity and how they can't go anywhere <laughs> but it really was like a literal prison the band would pull up to the, the where they were playing the rest of the guys could get out Merle there's a famous scene in the script where Merle's looking out the little bubble window of his bus because he can't and Freddie then often would hang out with him when he couldn't go out anywhere and their friendship was just one of of hours and hours and hours and hours spent together where very few other people would get such a position i guess you'd say of friendship and music and and everything else the partying i'm sure was fun too but freddie was really merle's um you know i think 
best friend, right? I mean, tell, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. One of his yeah, very they, they were very close. And Freddie was one of the guys that, and, and, and matter of fact, Biff Adams and Norm Hamill even tell in the book is that when there, there would be times when Merle didn't want to go out and do the show or he didn't want to get up and they would turn it over to Freddie because Freddie was the only one that could go in and get him up. And there was times that Freddie would go in and, and you know, and use Merle's um, prison number. And call it out, you know, and I, I, I don't remember the number, but he would get up and call that out. And Merle would tell him to hit the floor. And Merle would jump up, you know, as if Freddie was some kind of prison guard. But he'd get him out there on there and they'd go do the show. So That's... but Freddie was also, you know, even Biff will tell you that anytime there was a problem or something needed to be thought out or fixed or whatever, Freddie was the go to guy. He was the one that would. Fix everything for everybody, you know. In in fact, as an engineer, um, because he was such a that's the other thing, he was such a talented guy outside of just music. They lived up in the Ruby Mountains uh, in early. No, 90s. no, no. We lived in we lived in that Ruby Mountains is where we had our honeymoon. Okay, but we lived in um, up in Doyle, California, where we actually lived off the grid, and Freddie uh, made his own electricity. When we moved up there, you, there was no electricity. It was like on one side of the road, um, everybody the highway, everybody had like wind or solar. And then on our side of the highway, it was either hydroelectric or solar. And Freddie, the genius that he was, took a double-door refrigerator, buried it in the back, uh, and put a Peloton wheel on one side, a generator on the other side. And the next thing you know, we had electricity. And it was all made by Freddie. So. Yeah. And also in that in that same era when they first got married, because their love story is another important part of this book. It's really an entertaining one, too. Um, they're on their honeymoon. And we we romanticize it a little bit in the screenplay scene, but it really was was the case. They were sitting there getting ready, cooking dinner or whatever they'd caught that day going fishing. And the, there was a trapper named Claude Dallas. And I remember this because it was like a unsolved mysteries and like a America's most wanted about this guy when I was a kid. So I, the name came back to me. Well, they were looking for him in the same randomly range of mountains. And this group of sheriffs tell they come running up on him with shotguns while they're sitting there around their honeymoon uh, bonfire. And, and Catherine can tell you from there. It was kind of a funny story. Well, they did. They come up. And of course, you know, they're looking for this guy. And um, the guy's got his gun pointed right at Freddie, you know, at his leg. And. Um, after a few moments of asking us questions and everything, then the guy realized that this was Freddie Powers. And he was like, Freddie Powers, the entertainer. And he was like, uh, yes. And Freddie goes, do you mind removing that gun from my leg? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, but uh, it, it was kind of a funny thing because here we are at a honeymoon and they're looking for this notorious guy out there that has <laughs> killed a game warden. And they come up on us. So. And they knew who Freddie was way up in the mountains. That's what's kind of comical about it. And 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 then there's another, you know, the other aspect of Freddie and Catherine's journey on this bus. That's so there. There's so many stories in the book about the the logistical nightmares of having a Parkinson's patient who's actively in the worsening stages of the disease on a hospital bed that you're trying to in a bus that you're trying to drive around the country. And there's stories Catherine can tell you about like getting stuck on the Miami, that crisscrossy freeway at rush hour and a fire. Tell them about, what are a couple of the funniest of those? If that's cool. <laughs> that, that one was quite funny. 
Um, I don't really we're gonna get into all detail on that, but we did. We um, pulled into this place and uh, was gonna spend the night. And next thing I know, the police are banging on our door, telling us that we have to move. There was a fire. There was a truck that was on fire right next to us. And so here I am trying to settle Freddie, get Freddie all strapped into the bed and getting the curtains open so we could drive out of there. But and then, of course, we break down on the highway. And and that was the theatrical itself. I mean, we just but we had some great experiences. (laughs) But I had actually taken Freddie down to Key West, Florida to receive the uh, Republic of the Conch Republic um, Awards. So we went through all this, you know, it's all these funny things happening to us all the way down to Key West just to receive an award. (laughs) And Willie and Merle and John Rich and Tanya, she can tell you why this is significant because the the effort to keep him on the road was not just, it was mainly Catherine and Joy, his nurse and others and Cass Hunter and others that were on the road with them, Carrie to be fair and Freddie the third, his grandson, but also all the people that helped out to pay to help keep him out there on the bus. Tell them about that because that's an important well, you know, it all kind of started that when um, I let us get into a little bit of trouble there for a while because I became, I, to me, it was more important to keep Freddie out there on the road, to keep him out there working. And even when club owners, you know, would say, okay, yeah, you could play here, but I don't know if I want to pay. And it was like, don't worry, I'll take care of the band. And so instead of paying bills and uh, things like that I should have been, um, I let him go. And the next thing you know, I was in a little bit of financial trouble. So Willie comes up and the first thing, next thing I know, he's paid off our car. He's paid off our credit cards, put money in the bank, given us a fresh start. Then Merle stepped up and it was, it was them, all of them helping me keep Freddie's out there working and being a part of the business. I would take him out to their shows. They would bring him on stage and, you know, if Freddie was still able to sing, he would be, you know, sing him. His last major tour was the last of the breed tour with Merle and Willie and Ray Price and Ray Benson of Sleep at the Wheel. So, um, but they would send gas cards. I would get an envelope full of just gas cards to every gas service station, you, you know, you could possibly run across. And if the bus broke down, you know, John Rich, ride out a check, pay to keep the bus running. It, it was just the camaraderie of all of them and the love that they had and the respect they had for Freddie that just was um, so touching to me, to, to, you know, and, and which yeah. drove me to even want to do more to keep Freddie out there. Yeah. So it, it, when we talk about these relationships like that he had with Willie or Merle or these people, it wasn't just in the good times. It was in the bad time. It was in the, the times of struggle, too. And, and you know, the other thing that uh, uh, having witnessed this firsthand for, uh, you know, the last few years of it, um, the unsung people that we we have a cast of characters in the front of this book as we wanted to make sure every single one of them got credit. Um, for some acknowledgement, I suppose is a better word. Um, Robin, friends of Catherine's, pa- her pastor down in Florida, Bama, she can tell you about. But the cast of people that 
that even people that really, to be fair, were just discovering who Freddie was. They just knew this guy as somebody who was in a, in a you know, Parkinson state and was trying to get into a wheelchair off a bus to get to a club to play. And they just seeing that alone was like, OK, in France, in fact, she can tell you this really remarkable stories at the Echo Blues Festival in 2010 or uh, I think it was 10 that yeah. we got from musicians there playing where Freddie's trying to sing and his Parkinson's in this chair. Tell him, I mean, just the audience, tell him what the audience and the band did. It was, well, well, I want to back up some real quick first. Yeah. Um, it was actually Merle Haggard that we had gone to Merle's um, for an Agatha Christie um, party up at Merle's for Thanksgiving. And they were all sitting there picking. Freddie had his guitar. And all of a sudden, Freddie just had this. You could see he was struggling. And um, he turned to Merle and he said, Merle, he said, I just can't play anymore. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And you could see the hurt and the pain and Merle and Scotty Josh and all of them when they realized that, you know, they're not going to be able to play with Freddie more. But Merle turned to Freddie and he said, but you can still sing. And that was like an opening for Freddie, you know, to say, okay, you're right. And so with just, be- just because of that, it gave Freddie the, the energy and the desire to keep going. And, um, the the Merle thing that was that was a major thing for Freddie when he told him he said you can still sing, and so that that is what kept him going. But what did you want me to tell him about? Well, that kept him going not only to say like Willie's you know Fourth of July picnic to tell jokes and sing, but it kept him going all the way to Europe four years later. Here this yeah. man is worsened in his condition and still fighting. And Catherine and the band and tell him what happened when he was up well, there. Yeah, when we, he was up there and he was on the stage and he was singing, and um, because of the Parkinson's and you shake a lot and everything. Freddie kept slipping and falling out of this chair that they, you know, they had put together for him up there on the stage. It's big, beautiful, like a king's chair. It was just great. And um, in the middle of the song, everybody just kind of stopped. And they started taking off their belts. And they strapped Freddie in that chair so he could continue his show. And the audience of 10,000 people just, they, they loved it. And I mean, and what was so funny about that is over Europe, they line danced everything. And to see them out there line dancing to looking for a place to fall apart was <laughs> absolutely just, it was great. Yeah. And and then beyond that, the other thing that's really, you know, significant, I think among a lot of this, this that's you I appreciate you're t- letting us take the time to, to really flesh out the true, um, movie that is this book in terms of the life this man lived and the influence that he had and the people he touched is that, you know, as it got to be later on in his career, I would, would go down to Florida once they were settled in Florida, and to see the songwriters and to see the bar help and to see whether it was anything that they, that it became like a team Freddie, Catherine, actually, they had a shorthand for it. Didn't they? Uh, like there was a, a term for Fred heads or something. There was like a, well, the, yeah, we always, you know, call them the grateful Fred heads, you know, but um, <laughs> the customer service, which they call them the yellow shirts, they would help, you know, get me, you know, help me getting Freddie in and out of the bus. Um, we would take Freddie out. We'd, get those um, wheelchairs, those beach wheelchairs and take Freddie for rides on the, the wheel, you know, and out on the beach. But the deal was, is I actually 
took Freddie out of the hospital and brought him down to the floor of Bama, thinking that he only had three to four months left. That's what they told me in the hospital. The next thing I know, we are living in the far Bama parking lot for almost four years um, with Florabama having to fight the city and the county over, you know, people living in their a bus in their parking lot, which you're not supposed to do. They would have to pay a fine or whatever. But, um, and then they had the, there's a church there at the Florabama. It's yeah. worse on the water with Central. And um, the church was very helpful, which everybody goes to church in a bar. Yes, I'm always saying, where would God be? Down there with our sinners. But, uh, but, uh, out with Freddie. <laughs> with Freddie. But uh, the church was really instrumental with helping me as well. They would, you know, cook for me, bring me food. The, to me, the greatest thing they did was they did my laundry. They would come and pick up my laundry and take my laundry home and do my laundry and stuff. And keeping Freddie's sheets and towels and stuff clean for us was just, it was we couldn't have found a better place in the world to have lived his final days. Yeah. And, and, and we, end you know, we end the book on a really unusual, I'll tell you another thing about this book. This is the, including the ones, the Europe and Japan, I'm just counting numbers. This is 54, I think. Wow. And in that whole catalog, this is the story of terms of endings of books. It's probably my favorite ending of maybe exception of one other, because Catherine and Freddie, if I can just say it at the balls to roast Freddie as basically his, it wasn't his funeral cat. There's in the book, uh, we chronicle his whole send off down in Florida with like a Marine flag ceremony. And then Catherine hosted, Freddie wanted to be roasted. So all these people get up and tell these stories about him. And we printed some of them. I won't share them here because they get a little racy in some cases, but they're really funny. And they show you the people that, in fact, one of them, Bo, I won't say the story, but what's the name of the gentleman with the, how do you like your hero now? Bo Roberts. Make sure if you pick up a copy of the book, which comes out tomorrow, The Spree of 83, The Life and Times of Freddie Powers, <laughs> that you read Bo Roberts' story at the end of the book among that roast because it will crack you up. There are so many funny stories. This book is a comedy, too. As, as heartfelt as it is and as action-packed as it is and as musically inspiring as it is, it's also really funny. I mean, it, it the this guy's sense of humor with me. I could share some of it and I could not share the rest of it because my mother might hear it. But uh, even even when I'd hang out with Freddie, I mean, we had a in Catherine. It was, we'd have a blast. John Rich and Big Kenny tell this really funny story of taking Freddie up in North Dakota uh, in Blackwood, I believe, to gamble. Uh, uh, Deadwood to gamble and where Freddie was at the point where, but he could still, Catherine could tell this story better than me, but it's just remarkable. The good times this gentleman had amid this condition. They kept him just, <laughs> rock and roll he had an 80s birthday that was a little racy i mean party it just kept going catherine can tell you I mean, <laughs> yeah for his 80th birthday big and rich actually sent him a stripper his <laughs> <laughs> sister was sitting in the audience um not very thrilled about it but i had explained to her look this is your your brother and this is uh something that <laughs> the, the boy he wants <laughs> But, you know, Freddie, when, when he knew that he was passing and everything, he was, that was the one thing he said, Mama, I don't want no funeral or memorial service where everybody up there telling sad stories and crying about me. He said, I want y'all to roast me. And he said, and tell them that if they don't know a story about me, 
to make one up because there'll probably be some truth in it. So, uh, <laughs> so we roasted Freddie, and I mean, it was a very, and I, he's right. It, it was uh, a little R rated, a little PG 13, <laughs> but, but all true and all really funny. I mean, I actually had to tell the people, you know, look, you know, after we did the, the, um, Marine. Marine service and the gun salute and all that good stuff. Then when it got time for the roast, I had to tell people, if you got tender ears, this would be a good time to leave because <laughs> we're going to roast Brady and we're going to talk about some subjects. <laughs> so, One of them was a lot of boobs. <laughs> yeah, hopefully the film, you know, we really, now that COVID's dying down and we hopefully can get our funding restored, because we were far along, we were in production on this. We had, we'd been talking to a couple without saying their names because they went away as that so the parts go to other things. Right. We had a couple really great actors that were talking about playing Freddie and other characters in the movie. But the other important thing, and in the soundtrack, which you can also buy, uh, check out the official book soundtrack on Spotify, um, 52 songs, two discs you get to hear this amazing collection of music. The performances that you can listen along with while you read this book and just, man, I mean, it, it's country to Dixieland jazz to everything in between. The, the, the subgenres within country that this man impacted and played so competently and beyond competently that others, he, there's actually, in fact, to that point, Catherine uncovered the six song demo uh, not demo, but basically six song acoustic EP of guitar instructional performances that Freddie recorded for Bill McDavid when they were he was teaching him guitar. We have that in we included it just so if you want to learn the Freddie Powers chords, you can sit there and he calls out the chords in some cases. Well, it's just such a quirky, cool, awesome, unique book uh, and story and and soundtrack. And hopefully we think film when it comes out. We took. This font, not the title, but this font from Smokey and the Bandit, which is the <laughs> same era that I first discovered Freddie in the 80s. And we thought, I thought it would be fun. But we basically are treating this book like a fork. You know, if you read the book, you'll want to see the film. You'll want to hear his music. And we just want to keep his name alive because he, he's, it's such an entertaining story. Jake, I wanted to give you one more chance to throw up that uh, that book up there. Let us know where people can find more info about that, the music, and uh, and everything else as well. Free of 83, The Life and Times of Freddie Powers is out Friday, May 15th in stores. Now, with COVID, that might, you know, that could mean you go in and ask for it, and you may have to, you know, maybe the next week that the physical copies are on shelves. But I know there's about 500 Barnes & Noble orders as of right now, so we know those are for sure. Um, you can obviously go to Amazon. The ebook is up, this, uh, I believe, the end of this week, start of next week, so you can see it there. Um, again, I mentioned the soundtrack, official of Freddie Powers. It might be in unique tradition of Freddie being such a trendsetter throughout his career. I believe this... This is one of the first official book soundtracks for a country music memoir ever. Wow. And it's prolific. It's two. And Robert Hurst, this wonderful painter, I want to make sure that we credit, gave us use of this beautiful photo painting that he did. Catherine, what was that induction? That was one of Freddie's many Hall of Fame inductions. Which one was It that? was for the Texas Songwriters Hall of Fame. It's the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yeah. So we used that that photo for the cover. And, and it. it just really, really, if you love country music, you can't not love Freddie Powers because it, it, by extension, Outlaw Country, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, John Rich jokes that if there was a, or Big Candy within Big and Rich, their interviews, they said if there was a Mount Rushmore of country, it would have it would have Willie, it would have Merle, it would have Waylon and it would have Freddie. And for, for them to say that where they could have picked anybody and just so many other people that echo Rattlesnake Annie gives us some poignant 
uh, memories of playing with Freddie and, and other really, really respected people from that Texas. You know, if you love that music, you have to love these people. And American Songwriter Magazine um, really did an amazing piece yesterday. It, it's one of the proudest write-ups I've ever had, and I can't even count them. Um, and a lot, you know, you always are appreciative for book coverage, but the substance of these stories so far, really, this is Reno.com did one. Um, and this, and you asked the spring of 83 book.com. You can see all of it. Uh, we appreciate your time and thank you so much for supporting Freddie. Jake and Catherine, I appreciate you guys taking some time, sharing some stories. I'm, I'm excited to check out the book myself. Let me give one more one more plug if I can. I've, I've been filming a streaming television show where I interview the best-selling authors in the world comprehensively in hour-long episodes called About the Authors TV. The first two seasons aired late this fall on Amazon and Hulu. Um, we've shot 120, so there's going to be seven of them coming up. And uh, we will lo- we'd love we love to talk to you in the future about that, but also we will be returning to production on this film next year. So if we get to that point, we'd love to come back on and talk about the movie at some point if you consider having us. Well, thanks again for joining us for this 80th episode of Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. If you ever have a comment, a question, anything else you'd like to know, you can hit me up on the contact page at gqwithcam.com. You can also find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook, all at GQ with Cam. If you'd like to help out in the funding for this podcast, visit our merch store, We've got hoodies, shirts, stickers, tumblers, mugs, and more. That's gqwithcam.com forward slash shop. Of course, if you have a special guest idea, email me, gqwithcam at gmail.com. Thanks again to our good friend Brandon Allen for coming up with our theme music. We're going to let him play us out. Hope you guys have a great rest of your Thursday. 